0: Hello, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is
1: Dan Gorman from the University of Rochester.
0: Thanks so much for being here today, Dan.
1: Ah, good to see you, Andy.
0: Yeah. So I know today you are talking with Dr. Jason Joseph Storm about his recent book, Metamodernism. This is definitely a, you know, a jam-packed interview that covers, yeah, it does. It covers quite a lot of information. So could you talk a little bit about what our listeners can expect to hear?
1: I can try, but Metamodernism, (laughs) The Future of Theory, is a book that defies easy categorization. Broadly speaking, it's a work of critical theory. Sections of the book address religious studies, but also anthropology, history, uh, many of the human sciences. Storm is essentially trying to break academics out of what he regards as the trap of postmodernism, eternally tearing things down and questioning eternally and then not actually proposing new material, new theories. So he explores how he thinks the Academy got into this theoretical trap, how he thinks there is no single thing as postmodernism. These are just disparate traditions that Americans shove together. And he starts to talk about ways forward, one of the major themes of the book is situating human knowledge within the natural world and also thinking about the limits of human knowledge and bringing a playfulness to the pursuit of knowledge. I'll admit that I didn't understand everything in the book. I don't think most people will understand everything (laughs) in the book, but it it did lend itself to robust conversation, particularly because I was struggling to make sense of it myself. It made me a much more critical reader of the book. And -hmm. of course it made me phone lots of friends on the religious studies, uh, discord to help me out.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, this sounds excellent and I can't wait to hear it. Take it away. Stop worrying where you're going. Move on. If you can know where you're going, you've gone. Just keep moving.
1: music. This is the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dan Gorman, and I'll be your host today as we discuss Metamodernism, the Future of Theory by Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, published in summer 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Dr. Storm, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is really exciting. I look forward to talking to you today. So the first time I heard the term metamodernism was actually in a country music album by Sturgill Simpson, uh, 2014's metamodern sounds and country music. And I took metamodernism to mean sort of a mixture of playful and serious. As an example, you have a country singer earnestly singing a cover of a new wave song in the middle of the album. Um, but we're not talking about pop music and we're not talking about country metamodernism. So I'm curious,
2: uh, how did you light upon the term metamodernism to describe this project? Great. Yeah. So first I came to the term metamodernism actually rather late uh, in the the project, and it may not be as uh, centrally relevant as the title makes it sound. Um, In early review of the project, uh, I was calling the book Absolute Disruption, The Future of Theory After Postmodernism, but people commenting on it kept referring to it as an example of post-postmodernism. And the term the phrase post-postmodernism made me want to throw up. It was really terrible, and so it was clear to me that people wanted to assimilate it to an ism, and it didn't fit in many of the existing isms of the current moment. It's not postmodern. It's not modernist. It isn't really new materialist. I engage with those folk, but it's not that. It's not critical realist, etc., etc., etc. And so I was kind of looking around in the very final phases of the project to kind of connect it up to an ism, and I was reminded of something I'd read a long time ago by a Nigerian art historian named Amoyo Okadiji, who had. Use the term meta modern to describe artists who are intentionally trying to push the boundaries of modernist and postmodernist art at the same time. He was particularly talking about post-colonial artists from the uh, vantage point of the black diasporic world, including himself. So it was sort of a manifesto. And that really resonated with me in a bunch of different ways, especially also um, it resonated with work like the duo that go by the name Hansi Freinacht, who were also trying to sort of push beyond modernism and postmodernism in the field of politics. And what I wanted to do, I thought, uh, as I thought about naming the project, was push beyond both subvert, transcend both modernism and postmodernism in the terrain of scholarship. But unlike many other folks who've used the word metamodern, I'm not trying to describe a pre-existing phenomena. I'm not talking about metamodernity. I'm not saying that there's certain kinds of art that I want to you know, baptize within a metamodern or what have you. Uh, instead of describing a paradigm shift, I was actually trying to produce a paradigm shift. And so what I was in that respect doing was working out my own intellectual past. And I was using postmodernism in this sense, in a very specific way, to describe a particular scholarly paradigm that came to dominance in the Anglo-American Academy, really in the 80s and 90s, as a bricolage of French theory from earlier decades. Uh, And it was how we were trained in many of the human sciences in in the period up until maybe the early 2000s. And it was a model that had kind of begun to break down. And I wanted to consolidate the good stuff in postmodernism as an academic model, as well as transcend uh, its limitations. (laughs) So in a way, to get past postmodernism by radicalizing it would be one way to think about it. Or you might call the whole book uh, Confessions of a Recovering Postmodernist. It's not quite like that, but uh, I definitely emerged from within that milieu, and I'm trying to figure out what parts of it uh, are actually doing the work we needed to do and what parts have become self-defeating. For much of my intellectual life, I've been a – Heretic of philosophy, we might say, interested in particular East Asian philosophy, uh, but also the kind of philosophical figures who have been excluded from particularly analytic philosophy departments. And so as a grad student in Cambridge, in Oxford, in Paris... In Tokyo, I just went to the lectures by people who were trending so-called, quote-unquote, postmodernist philosophers, people like Jacques Derrida, uh, people like Cornel West who were engaging with the category of postmodernism, people like Richard Rorty, and really kind of marinated and tried to assimilate that stuff. And a lot of it was really good. But it has its own limitations. So in a way, the project is an attempt to kind of work through and past "quote unquote" postmodernism in theory. Um, you know, also you know, it's just the way we're training scholars in religious studies. So my uh, one of my main scholarly role models, for example, was Bernard four who, um, who was on my dissertation committee and who was central for integrating theory from French thought of the period in uh, the study of Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. So, so all of this was you know providing a kind of scholarly model. So I mean, postmodernism is a scholarly model that came to define both my orientation to the discipline and I think for many of us had something inspiring and exciting about it, but also had its limitations. And it's not what we're doing now. And there's room for and time for uh, moving past postmodernism. A postmortem, we might say, of postmodernism is in order to consolidate what was good about it and why why it was appealing in the first place and how we might move past it. And I think that there've been a bunch of different, alternate post-postmodernisms on offer. And so far, most of them, to my mind, haven't really grappled with the real philosophical issues that postmodernism brought up. So I neither want to mer- want to stay in the old postmodern moment, nor do I want to reject it and just sort of leap willy-nilly into some newly idealized modernism that then pretends there were never any problems, uh, etc. So this was an attempt to work through postmodernism uh, dialectically and out the other side.
1: I think it might be helpful at this point to talk a little bit about what falls into the modernism and postmodernism camps. Now, in my own experience, I've trained as a historian, and the modernist era, you know, sort of the 1920s through like the early Cold War, if you want to sit call that the modernist period. On the one hand, you had historians who were very interested in, you know, objective facts, empirical facts, uh, politics, economics, you know, that dream of objectivity. But at the same time, you had modernist artists who were very into subjectivity and personal expression and things that weren't necessarily purely empirical, you know, hard social sciences. So already that's a break in what modernism is. There wasn't a single modernism that if you skip ahead to the postmodern era of, you know, the 70s to the 90s, if you want to call it that you have, on the one hand, all these historians and artists getting interested in critical theory and questioning the status quo. Where do our assumptions come from? So again, very subjective, which you could say is a bit like modernism. But on the other hand, in the 70s to the 90s, you had all these religious studies scholars getting really into materialism and studying observable objective evidence, which again, seems like modernism. And what I'm trying to say here is that it doesn't seem like there was a single modernism or a single postmodernism from my vantage point. I was interesting to read about your, bo- your book saying that it's an attack, well, not an attack, but a critique of modernism and postmodernism. But in a way, aren't both categories sort of
2: artificial and unstable? Well, it's actually good that you make that point because that's exactly the kind of theory that I'm actually doing in the book. In other words, most of our conceptual categories have a similar kind of instability built into them. So there are many different things we might want to mean by the word postmodernism, for example. So there's not like an essential po- postmodernism in art looked so-called self-referentially such, looked very different and didn't necessarily share properties in common with postmodernism in literature didn't necessarily share properties in common with postmodernism in the academic disciplines uh, so a lot of different things could get flagged as postmodernism so the question becomes in in the process of so i have a lot of theory in the book that i don't want to kind of skip ahead to but that talks about how we might productively use our Uh, analytical categories, our social kinds for lack of a better term. And I'm using postmodernism as a very specific kind of social kind. I'm selecting from the range of possible postmodernisms, uh, different things that are labeled as postmodernism. And I'm selecting things that are certain kinds of Works that have been clustered together in the academy, and I have a, a causal story for why those works were clustered together. So, in brief, there was a historical moment that started. Um, we could argue about it, but uh, exactly when in the Anglo-American academy, but in the 80s or 90s, where we have simultaneously the shift of from positivism in philosophy that rendered philosophy as an analytical discipline largely irrelevant to the work uh, for a time, anyway, happening in many uh, humanistic disciplines. So, the uh, Vienna positivism just you know didn't work very well if you wanted to study art history, for example. But people wanted to be able to make generalizations. We often wanted to talk about the things that we were doing in terms of larger patterns and structures. And we needed a kind of theoretical edifice to think about the ethical values in our work, to, to think about their uh, their epistemologies, their notions of knowledge, etc. And so uh, for various historically specific reasons, uh, English literature departments, having been primed to look for something different because of the literary functions of existentialism, began importing into the academy a sort of bricolage selection of French theorists, many of whom disagreed with each other, almost none of whom called themselves postmodernists. And then some of that then expanded to related figures uh, from the same period in Germany or in the United States. And together, in places like textbooks, but also in graduate programs, et cetera, these were stitched together to produce a kind of postmodernism, so-called. And it had fairly stable characteristics. The surprise is that it uh, tended to focus on five different kinds of problems that I talk about. It might had five different properties as I talk about it uh, with my analytical edifice. Uh, that particular model was diffused slightly differently in different academic <laughs> disciplines, but tended to have similar kinds of functions to it. Um, we could go into detail what they were, but I, but I want to say that it's that sort of compilatory process that pushed these things together. But then once it became a model, it became a model in two respects. It became an antithetical model against which people define themselves in opposition, or it became a, a model in which theorists come to define themselves as postmodernists, even though the thinkers they were referencing to didn't understand themselves uh, together or in that way. So American academics, for example, would read a snippet of Derrida, a snippet of Foucault, not knowing that those dudes hated each other for at least 10 years and totally argued, uh, would add in a little bit of Deleuze, maybe a little bit of Heidegger, and then would take that material to do film theory or, or what have you in a particular historical moment in the academy. And what kind of work, you might ask, I, you know, what, what work was these references to Derrida and Foucault doing in their scholarly projects? And a lot of it was questions of knowledge, questions of value, questions of realism, quote unquote, uh, questions of the constituents of the social world, uh, questions of ethics, etc. And so in that respect, there, there are um, many different possible kinds of postmodernisms. But- the other key to the way that this post quote-unquote postmodernism was formulated, there, there are two other things I want to observe about this because we're historians. We can talk about it as a historical artifact. There are two other key features. One, many of the philosophical issues associated with postmodernism preceded the arrival of the French theory in the academy. So, for example, new criticism in English departments. Derrida never really said everything is only a text. The Derridean phrase that there's no outside of the text meant something very different. But in New Criticism, there was the argument that there was nothing other than the text. And in fact, in New Criticism also, we have the first formulation of the death of the author. This is 40 years or something before Roland Barthes formulated his formulation of the death of the author. We have it actually in the Anglo-American Academy. So in the first instance, I want to say this thing that gets knit together in a new formulation as postmodernism is is often – the use of French and uh, German, etc., theorists in translation to address indigenous concerns, and often building off pre-existing philosophical debates. But then the second point mm-hmm. is that postmodernism often framed itself in dialectical opposition or in direct opposition to something it called modernism, which you're right, is a weird caricature, because if we look historically at, for example, postmodernism in art uh, and modernism in art, they actually shared, for example, many overlapping features. Or even in philosophy, people, philosophers who call themselves modernists often made reference to Nietzsche before Nietzsche was baptized, then the central figure of postmodernism. So there there are certain kinds of continuities, but they began to produce each other in opposition. And the postmodernists, insofar as people embrace the label, attacked what they saw as modernists or positivists, which they identified together, producing a, an opposing category. And, and we can see, and I say this as dialectical, but it's pretty clear in the names that became associated with postmodernism in the academy, that they're all negative dialectical formulations. Postmodernism, that's a negation. It's a post of modernism. Deconstruction, it is a negation of construction. Anti-essentialism, a negation of essentialism, anti-foundationalism, etc., etc., etc. So what I'm interested in is the place where those ideas gelled together. And, uh, and then what uh, caused, only brought them together. And, and I want to, and so I have a section on that in the introduction, by the part that most people might want to skip in the book, if you don't really care about the historical nitty gritty. And I say, you might actually want to skip it because at the end of the day too, what I'm doing in the book, um, although I'm working out of postmodernism, doesn't rest on those foundations. It's an attempt to do first order philosophy. Uh, every argument in the book stands on its own. Whether I've read Derrida or Derrida's reception in the United States correctly or incorrectly, it, it almost doesn't matter. It's just the, They're just setting up the problems or the issues around which I focus a kind of intellectual attention. And so at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is something very new, but from the advantage of people who either identify as postmodernists or anti-postmodernists, the project of mine is going to look like it's either building off of postmodern or it's repudiating it, depending on which area of concern the scholar is interested in. So, in that respect, uh, it's an attempt to do kind of a new, produce a new model for, for doing scholarship across the humanities and the social sciences, but with a recognition that my own training was in a version of this postmodernism uh, itself. So, I, I think it might help um, listeners, particularly to this podcast, to get a sense of, of what I'm doing if I connect it back up to the project of my first book, and then uh, sort of talk about how it emerged out of that. And I say that because my first book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, for those of you who might or might not have read it, came out of a conversation in critical religion and post-colonial theory. In effect, uh, scholars in critical religion had spent a long time arguing that – the category religion was a Eurocentric category that was fundamentally fraught, that it was not a universal found in all cultures and all peoples, you know, the individual atheists uh, accepted. And uh, so I wanted to agree with, I agreed with the critique about the problem with universalizing the category religion. But what I wanted to show was that although it emerged from Anglo-American and, well, more broadly speaking, European a historical horizon and concerns. So although it was Western in its broad formulation and colonial in its function, the uh, Japanese actors engaging with the category had some creative agency in, in assimilating that category. But uh, in brief, I looked at how Japanese intellectuals looked at the term religion, tried to figure out, uh, were forced to do so by these asymmetric trade treaties of people pointing guns at them, basically American uh, warships pointing guns at Japan, uh, and how that forced uh, these Japanese thinkers to come up with something that might be labelable by that category religion in Japan. To do that, they they came up with a totally new term, a uh, shukyo, which did not exist previously. The, and they came up with a legal institution to guarantee and defend or protect or define, all those were identified together, the category religion itself. So uh, in that respect, what I wanted to do was show how, on the first hand, I grant the critique of the category of religion, grant that its horizon within a particular colonial history, but also note that it isn't quite as simplistic as the hegemonic imposition of a European other over Japanese thinkers. And then the Japanese thinkers I was looking at were themselves elites who often then t- imposed the category newly constructed of religion on people within Japan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it became a complex process of negotiation at many levels. What I wanted to suggest there, this, in many respects, the book, uh, Metamodernism, builds off of that first book. I can talk about the ways it builds off of the second book too, but I, but but for Religious Studies podcasts in particular, there's been a history in religious studies where we could continue to fight the fight between universalists who try and generalize religion in some new way, located in the brain maybe, or uh, uh, talk about, I don't know, some kind of universal notion of cognitive religion or what have you, or or theological notions of universalized religion, or a deconstructive turn in critical religion where we could spend all of our time just telling people that the category religion doesn't apply anymore, that the category is fraught, that it is fundamentally problematic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to grant that the category is problematic, but actually start from that And one of the moves that made this metamodernism book possible, one of the first rounds uh, of doing research on it, was that it became clear to me already in the Japan book that religion was a problematic category. But already in that book, I observed that religion was not the only problematic category. Indeed, there was a parallel to the critique of the category religion in philosophy of science, sometimes called the demarcation problem. with earlier critical trends in in philosophy of science, like Kuhn, uh, Thomas Kuhn, or Hanson, or Larry Loudon, who formulates it specifically as a demarcation problem, or a whole host of critical work within the philosophy of science, which shows that that science has similar problems to it, basically. But already after that book, so I was thinking about the problem, sort of the problematization and the historical specificity of the categories of religion and science. But I began to note that those are not the only two categories with issues. Often in religious studies, we're presented with a sense that religion is uniquely problematic. Often in science and technology studies, we're presented with a version of the argument that science is itself a uniquely problematic category. But neither of that is the case. Indeed, if you look back into the history, we can see that almost all the major academic disciplines have had problems with their categories and that they have those problems, similar problems in a similar period. In other words, for example, disciplines started digesting their central object, disintegrating it. One of the first uh, is in uh, that I address in the book is in 1956, the philosopher of art, uh, Moritz Weitz, who argues that art has historically constructed uh, or um, has problems with it, that it cannot be conceptually defined. Uh, any attempt to define art, you always find artists will transcend the definition of art. Uh, so he began. Uh, the the critique of the category art in Influenced himself by Ludwig Wittgenstein and others, but then by 1958 we have Dorothy Emmett in society. In the same year, Raymond Williams in culture, and the same year Nor- uh, Norwood Russell Hansen on science. Uh, in, by 61 we have uh, Walter Ullman crit- criticizing the political. By 61 in the same year we have H.L.A. Hart and the notion of the law. Then the year after that we have Wilfred Cantwell Smith with his famous critique of the category religion. Uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, assault on science in the same year, or at least complication of it in terms of the notion of paradigms, uh, and ultimately you know we could keep going, blah, 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 blah. But as you're a historian, you'll, of course, know um, Hayden White's critique of the category history in 1966. So all of these category critiques start to happen in similar periods. And in the first case, I think scholars in uh, religious studies will want to read this metamodernism book because it's the first book to line up all those critiques. And one of the things that happens when you line up those critiques, I mean, I originally had a book that I started writing this book. I was going to have a separate chapter on each of them. I actually wrote Uh, Whole chapters on culture and society, for instance, uh, and their problematization, as well as religion, art, and science. But it turns out if you line up all those critiques, they have similar features to them. In fact, there are certain kinds of, you know, they all tend to assemble competing definitions. They argue that the category in question is not definable. They decompose concepts often by reference to Wittgensteinian family resemblance. They focus on exclusions built into the category or they historicize the category. They know that the category has changed over time or uh, they they culturally relativize the category. They note that the category doesn't apply uh, outside of the Euro-American horizon, they say, you know, people in South Asia, in traditional India, do not have our concept of art, for example. Or they note that the category is ethically fraught, that it has some kind of normative weight to refer to this as a work of art and not the scribble that's on the board behind me, for example. This scribble that you know to, to entertain my daughter is not art. That would be an evaluative statement to call that art or not art. Or to call something a science is to locate it in a particular uh, a notion of knowledge. All that is to say, there are predictable set of moves. And there's a whole chapter in the book where I lay out that move, those moves. It's a kind of deconstructive martial arts academy to train scholars to do the deconstruction, to bear, uh, to show is it sort of how to produce epistemological anarchy in any discipline and in any area, should you want to do it.
1: One thing you're bringing up here is that, and you mentioned this in the book, is that you see critical theorists who are questioning these categories of there is no single universal category of religion. There is no single universal category of history or art. It is, you just talk about the shift from people using fixed nouns like history to critics using verbs like historicize to convey flux. And I thought that was an interesting point, especially since with this book... You're acknowledging all the interesting ideas and insights that came from this postmodern period. Like, again, I've been trained pretty heavily in in Wilfred Cantwell Smith's idea of religion is historically specific to Europe. We have to look at other categories of behavior around the world. Even your, as you said, your first book was heavily inspired by that critique. But now you're saying we should, it almost sounds like you are saying we should bracket those concerns and move on.
2: No, no, exactly the opposite. I'm saying we should grant those and actually granting them changes them and fundamentally shifts their weight. So when you think religion is the only screwed up category, you're going to and if you think that the main goal is, you're going to have all these works that tend to terminate in the deconstruction of religion. There are works that go here's how religious studies has its own ideology and here's how we can deconstruct religion or what have you. There's no, you know, we want to s- shut down the conversation. For example, uh, Jay Z Smith, uh, you know, religion is a construct of the scholars, not, yeah. th- not the thing that we're studying. So I want to say actually we grant the critique. The first move is actually say, yes, every, you know, we grant the critique, but we universalize it. We say, Cantwell Smith noticed that religion was a problem, but he didn't. He tried to then produce the substitute term faith, for example, or cumulative tradition. You could produce a similar critique of each of those words. Exactly. Almost exactly the same critique Cantwell Smith used of the category religion. You could reflect onto his own category of faith, for instance. So what I want to suggest is that all of the terminology is equally problematic, but rather than uh, assuming that that means we can't do any scholarship, we actually can say, well, what if we grant this problematicity and then build off of it? In other words, work forward. In other words, let me put it in a, in a different way. And you're exactly right when you emphasize the process nature of it as the key, because uh, we can address many of these critiques. If we shift from what amounts to a substance to a process uh, ontology of, the, of, of our area of study. In other words, if we start thinking about uh, what we're studying in terms of processes uh, rather than in terms of fixed categories, it lets us actually see that those critiques are descriptions of the things that we're studying. They don't prohibit study. They're actually characteristics of the very things that we study in our world. A lot of our concepts are normative. Our concepts tend to be, in the human sciences in particular, almost necessarily normative, for instance. So rather than saying that that discredits them, that turns out to be a, a feature of the things that we study. The other key piece is focusing on a process ontology allows us to presume, you know, pr- granting the critique allows us to presume change and difference. And so, but if we presume change and difference, then we have to explain the opposite thing. In the previous work, let's say if you're like Foucault, I'm teaching a course on Foucault, so I've got my Foucault in my head a lot. But, you know, Foucault likes to show how categories, let's say, uh, fully or madness changed over time, how they had a certain kind of um, watershed moments and fractures, how that there were discontinuities in their genealogy. Well, we want to grant that all of our terminology has those kind of changes over time. And we want to grant that all of our terminology has fundamental kinds of variants. The things that we might capture uh, all have particular, can be historicized and relativized in the same kind of ways. So, but instead of that seeming as a grand unmasking, when, when Foucault strips the mask off of madness and says that it's changed over time, for example, that isn't his sole argument, but that's a piece of it, it shows that power is involved in, in, in its formation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We actually presume a stripped off mask. We presume that the category is changing. And the thing to be explained is not when the term madness changes its meaning, but actually the opposite. When is there any kind of stability? When is there any kind of homogeneity? So instead, so we presume change and difference. And instead, the thing to be explained becomes any kind of stability, any kind of self-similarity between the things that we're analyzing. So in that respect, uh, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a shift toward this. And, And I think the other thing that you were right was to highlight the process language and. Uh, sometimes people have talked about processes, the Deleuzians, for example, um, have used the word process to describe flux under the assumption that processes are undescribable, right? That like, if you name something as a process, you're you're just saying that it changes and we can't say anything about it. Actually, kind of, I want to say the opposite in that we can track our process, you know, process in a lot of disciplines, you know, chemistry, for example, uh, in biology are well studied and we can actually study them. They're not an unknowable flux. We may track how things have changed in the past without having to worry about how their current, dynamics would undermine our interpretation, although they might. Uh, There's a lot of solid work, for example, that investigates the historical and cross-cultural unfolding of religion as a category, which is no less helpful given that the category uh, has varied and changed. So yeah. So, so we have to presume that uh, kind of minimally we, we, we just have to be gaining knowledge faster than the term in question is changing. I
1: think you I think you misunderstood me, though, when I yeah. when I said that we need to bracket the critiques of postmodernism. So questioning, is there a static category of religion that's applicable everywhere? What yeah. I meant by bracket was what you were just getting into now with this idea of saying the critiques are valid. We can learn a lot from them. Yeah. But we still, those of us who are interested in things like faith, cumulative tradition, whatever you call it, things associated with religion, we still want to study those things. And we don't want to become caught in a trap of infinite, um, to go back to Sturgill Simpson, the turtles all the way down of critiquing forever. So when I said bracket, what I was actually trying to argue, Jason, is that you're saying we think about these things, they're useful, and then bracket it in the sense of, but we still want to continue building something new and making something. Reading this book, I found myself thinking of, strangely enough, the Stephen Sondheim musical Sunday in the Park with George, which which is a partial biography of George Seurat, so a modernist artist, even like pre-modernist, he's an impressionist, right? Uh, you know, with the pointillism paintings. Right. But the score is very postmodern and atonal and jarring. And then at the end of the show, you have, you know, using postmodernism to make the argument of you have to move on to the young artist. You have to put aside your postmodernist urges and be like your great grandfather, George Surratt, and create something new for yourself. And so reading your book, talking about saying postmodernism is useful, but you still at some point need to get back to that almost modernist the pursuit of making something, you know, whether that's empirical or subjective, it depends on your discipline. But yes, I found myself thinking of, the, you know, move on from Sunday in the Park with George. You have to move on.
2: I, I, I haven't uh, heard that musical. I'm unfortunately pretty uh, uh, ignorant of musicals. But um, Oh man, Sondheim
1: just died. You've got to listen to
2: it. I, I know. And apparently he was actually a student at the college that I teach at. So I, you know, there was, uh, at least that's what people were saying. Um, but, but I think that, that, you're, that you've captured something right about the sentiment of the book. I mean, I think maybe what I'm trying to do, so I was asked recently, for example, um, how does it change the way I teach? And maybe I can translate the maybe bridge the ground or communicate what I'm doing to tell yeah, you. the That's difference a very in the way good I idea,
1: teach. because you even and if I might advance a, a, yeah. a mild criticism of the book, you say in the introduction you wanted metamodernism to not be jargon heavy. There, I had to Google a lot of things in this book. And you do coin some terms like hylo semiotics and. Ergonic convergence, and we don't need to get totally down the theory rabbit hole here, but I just bring up, this would be a challenging book to teach to undergraduates because there's a steep learning curve involved.
2: There is, and it assumes a philosophical vocabulary. And I always try and gloss terms because I don't want to use jargon to hide behind. Yes, yeah, so you did do that, but I'm still saying yeah. it is a dense yeah. text. It is a very dense text. Totally, totally. So let me just tell you how it's changed my teaching. For example, so you know, concretely, we used to I used to teach a, a theory and method in the study of religion course, which went through the canonical figures. It went through the Durkheims and the Weber's. Uh, you know, added in uh, Du Bois and, and a few others that aren't necessarily canonized, but it basically went through those. Uh, and then. In the last class or two, we would have the deconstructive turn. We would we would look at the Wilfred Cantwell Smiths and the Jay Z Smiths. Often put them. I, I made a joke about Willie Smith and Jay Z, and then anyway, it's a data. That's joke. how
1: I was taught too. That
2: same progression. Yeah, right. And and then you would end in this deconstructive moment, and students would walk out of the class and they would think, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. I know less than I went in on, uh, and they would think, actually, why do we study religion? The whole point of it is to just. You know, there was a sort of a, a, a tonal shift. Right. And, and it would the, under the sign of the negative, they would go, oh, darn, why did I major in that subject? Maybe. Or, or and, you know, in, insofar as I'm a philosopher, I would you know say, oh, if we know less and we have more questions, we're gaining knowledge. But that felt really unsatisfying. Now, I the point now is not to cut the deconstructive part. But I actually flip it to the beginning. We now start with the deconstruction. We start with presuming that the category is screwed up. We start with reckoning with its messy colonial legacy. The difference is we just don't terminate in it. So we, we then figure out what we can do to make progress because, you know, there's no Archimedean point. There's no category that is not screwed up. There is no position outside the vast, the current iteration of the world system that is heavily interwoven, all these systems of power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then I have a lot of concrete, and and that's sort of the premise of the book. And then I have many concrete suggestions of what scholarship should look like having then started from this moment. But you're right, I think tonally that what I I don't like, um, so it's not that I'm saying don't have the postmodern sounds, but start with the postmodern sounds. You know, I'm an old recovering, well, not recovering, I'm an old goth, an aging goth, and you know, I'm not trying to shift us into positivity in some happy, cheerful way. Uh, we have to grant the screwed-upness of that history. We can grant all the things that are messy and complicated. I'm not trying to frame them out, but we don't end on them.
1: Well, and, and that's, that well, that's what I'm difference. saying with the Sondheim connection—that it exactly, comes to yeah. that postmodernism can teach us, but at some point you have to start making something new for yourself. And so I was thinking, reading this, about a couple of things. One of which was like the 1619 project, and how there are some people freaking out at the critique of racism in American institutions and culture. Some people, meaning hard right conservatives who are saying that if we pursue this, you'll have no American history left. It'll destroy everything and everything we believe in, which seems it's a gross. Well, it is. It doesn't seem like it is a gross caricature. But to me, I I even said this to my students last fall. Why wouldn't you want to have all these critiques and then factor that in as we start to assemble a new, better, you know, more accurate, hopefully history of America? I think the 1619 project ties in here, even though it's a very different analytical project from what you're pursuing.
2: Yeah, exactly. I I think if we recognize uh, our tragic past and the way that that tragic past is impinging on our present moment, that can actually be part of how we can work together to build a better world. So it's we don't want to, you know, uh, ignore the history of slavery and even its legacy. We need more projects that look at all the messiness uh, in our various history. But then also we need some projects that talk about now what? How can we work to combat systematic racism in our present moment? Uh, you know, what, how can we certain institutions have failed us? How can we work on building better institutions, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, you know, not. Uh, and so part of this book is exactly an attempt to make the case for that. So to, to make the case for how we might build on the recognition of our mm-hmm. problematic pasts uh, as not just the we is in the academy, but but even we uh, in, in whatever broad collectivity finds the, these kind of projects resonant to try and struggle together to build a better future. And so a, a good part of it is, is that exactly. Yeah. And it's not by saying the past never was bad.
1: Well, and this ties in also to the theme in the book when you talk about, again, I will admit the hylo semiotic stuff didn't fully understand it however what i did understand we were arguing that when you talk about hylo semiotics you're talking about seeing human society and all the signs and all the everything we produce as embedded in a larger natural world right we're influenced yeah. by animals we are animals ourselves just very highly functioning ones and i think if you're if you're interested in this theoretical project of using critique to then move on towards building something new well, this is relevant to climate change, right? Paying attention to the natural world we're a part of.
2: You, you've captured. I mean, that is a good part of that chapter. So, uh, yeah, exactly. That, that I think it's profoundly relevant to to, to climate change. And and in fact, that's part of why, you know, that chapter is written the way that it is. I mean, often the problem is on the one hand, we have these huge, massive things facing us like uh, anthropogenic climate change, systematic racism, patriarchy, violence, you know, a whole bunch of terrible things, you know, that are large and systematic and hard to grapple with. And our theory has gotten really atomized and really, really, really narrow. And so uh, in parallel to our kind of ethics that tries to put things on the individual consumer rather than addressing systems. It's like, it's the reason that oil companies I- encourage recycling because they wanted to not worry about their own contributions to polluting the environment, but make every, all of us worry about our carbon footprint in some minor way, right? So, but if we taboo certain kinds of generalizations or theorizing, we can't address these big problems. And part of what I wanted to do uh, in this book also was to make space for that. I can also talk a little bit more about uh, hylosemiotics uh, if, if you'd like me to explain uh, that particular, what I'm doing there. But I think you've captured why I'm doing it, exactly why I wrote that chapter, uh, and it's what its big payoff is, but I can – one of its big payoffs is, yeah.
1: I guess – so semiotics is coming out of modernist-era critical theory, the study of signs, symbolism, visual communication, and a good amount of early semiotics came out of the theory of structuralism, which – as I understand it, is the belief that meaning is arbitrary, but that generally speaking, one word, one signifier will be paired to one meaning. And it might be arbitrary how that's come to be, but generally speaking, things are somewhat stable. Then in the postmodern era, the poststructuralists say, well, actually a single signifier, a single word can be paired to infinite numbers of meaning. Um, and so it's very difficult to track any stability in language. How does your Hilo semiotics fit into that? And what does it mean? What does the hylo part mean?
2: Great. So first, the hylo um, uh, means matter or material. And so hylo semiotics, uh, in the first case, is a materialized semiotics. I can tell you a little bit about why that's different from new materialism in a minute. But so in the first instance, it's an alternative naturalized material semiotics that explores... Not only how the world functions in signs, in other words, how material objects function in signs, but also, more importantly, how human sign-making activities are on a continuum with plant and animal communication. As you're right, it starts from naturalizing semiotics. What if we? One of the things that came out of, uh, let's say, we could either locate it in Heidegger or you can locate it in Saussure, uh, is the idea that humans are uh, exiled in a realm of meaning that bracket out the world. In other words, the Saussurean so semiotic dyad, the dyad of the sign, the signifier and the signified uh, in Saussure, um, presumed that the thing that composes a sign is a sound, basically, and a mental image. But he wanted to bracket out, and this is probably why I, I always hang up on the word bracket, but anyway, bracket out the external world. He's like, I want to do linguistics. I don't want to talk about what things we refer to. Let's just pretend that there's not a material world out there, and let's just look at how the system of signs, one sign gets its meaning from its relationship to another sign, uh, and that's how we build a Grammar of general language and the post structuralists showed that that whole system was a mess it, it, as exactly as you right uh, in, in your right to observe it produces these um, paradoxes around language infinitely de- inference infinitely deferrable meaning for example, you know Derrida's notion of différence which is upon you know difference um, meaning is infinitely deferred, etc cetera, etc cetera, or I mean there are a bunch of critiques but what I want to argue is those were actually reductio absurdum proofs, that Saussurean semiotics wasn't an accurate semiotics. Instead of saying that language is fundamentally impossible to specify meaning, actually it just shows that Saussure didn't have uh, the best model for language. Uh, And we shouldn't be that surprised because Saussure wrote now over 100 years ago and linguistics, uh, uh, philosophy of language and other areas has moved on quite a bit. uh, But in many humanities and academic departments, we're still reading a critique of Saussure uh, as if that's uh, some kind of fundamental theory about meaning. So what might it look like to re-theorize meaning from the ground up? And the first thing that you might want to do is not bracket off the idea that meaning in the world have nothing to do with each other. And you might want to grant exactly as you were saying, uh, that, as, as a, um, that humans are animals. We're on a continuum. So if, so if chimps can communicate, how do they communicate? And I started reading a lot of work in uh, animal studies. And uh, of different sorts, uh, biology, eth- ethnology, etiology, um, et cetera, as well as a lot of philosophy of language and start really thinking about that issue. And what I came to was a particular theory of meaning. So as a semiotics, it's a theory of meaning. And we could call it an inferential theory of meaning. Uh, there are different ways to talk about that, but basically I make a distinction between sender meaning and receiver meaning. This is something very weird. So I'm initially inspired by people like Charles Sanders Peirce, but I go quite in a quite different direction from him and, and a ger- Baltic German uh, uh, animal <laughs> biologist named uh, Jakob von Uksko. But anyway, there's a difference between sender meaning and receiver meaning. Receiver meaning is inference. What a sign means is what a given sentient being infers in a given context. The sender meaning is what the sender wants to be inferred, but those are not the same thing. And we might note that the unit of meaning is materialized signs, not words. So, um, and the inference is not absolute, but it's interpreter relative. So I'm going to give you some specific examples because that's pretty abstract. Different people can get different kinds of meaning out of the same tree. I'm looking out my window and I see that it's turned its leaves up in a certain way. Uh, I might be getting the inferring that it is going to rain. So I might look out the window and see that tree means it's going to rain. That behavior of tree behavior means it's going to rain. Somebody else looking out the window at the same tree uh, might know something more about species of trees than I do. I almost know nothing about species of trees, but they might infer, oh, this is a birch. That means that the soil has a certain amount of acidity. Or they might infer uh, that the way that the light is reflecting off of the tree, uh, it might mean to them that the sun is setting. Those are different kinds of meaning. They're they're a perceptual account of meaning first. So I'm using meaning first to describe perception. But then I want to argue that if you think of human communication much more like the way that animals communicate, then you see that perception is first and then linguistic meaning is a secondary phenomena from that. So we read the world in a certain way. Uh, We interpret the world in a certain way. And based on ways that, you know, and the ways that we interpret the world relate to language but are not identical to language, we can use different kinds of vocabularies to talk about the world. They let us focus focus on different kinds of things, uh, etc. cetera. But um, part, so the meaning is not uh, in the words, but in the, this kind of complex sign that gets set up. The word tree used in different contexts can mean different things. A genealogical tree is a very different thing than a tree outside in the world, right? So that same sound could mean something different. And it's partially context that helps us differentiate those two usages of the word tree. And the other point, but a point that I grant the structuralists, and not because it's the structuralists who say this or the post-structuralists who say this, but because a lot of, there's a lot of evidence from psychology and from linguistics, we actually share less in the usage of our words than you might first anticipate. For example, studies of Princeton undergraduates showed that they disagreed about basic categories in their category hierarchy, like whether hot dogs were sandwiches, I think. I, I don't remember the exact study, but something like hot dogs or sandwiches or whether uh, to think of a scarf as an item of clothing or not, uh, or an accessory. All that is to say, we we don't actually agree about as much as we might think. We have different boundary lines. For example, my wife and I uh, disagree about exactly what counts as blue, a certain shade of blue, for example. But we do have the ability to communicate insofar as the receiver is able to infer the sender meaning. But uh, a receiver can also infer more than I mean to communicate. So, for example, um, so this is not a reduction of meaning to just what the author wants to say. But in fact, uh, in point of fact, you, know, you can infer a lot more. So if I say, for example, I don't know, I could say something and you could infer. The way that I'm babbling right now, you could, for instance, infer that I'm tired. I didn't sleep very well last night. That's not something I was meaning to communicate, but it's something you could infer from my style of communication.
1: No. So, just to summarize, then, it seems like in a way you do come down on the more post-structuralist side of there isn't necessarily a single a single referent for every sign. So, like you said, that a tree can mean things in different cases, but you are also not going fully down the, as you said, the ad infinitum path of oh, there's there's no world outside of text. You're talking about if we get outside of text and language, there is still something out there. Even if there were no humans left to describe a rock, the rock is still going to be there.
2: Yeah, and it, yeah, except the categories that the the rock has multiple categories that it can fit into. So uh, let me give you an example, like w- with a with a particular category. Let's let's talk about berries, okay? Let's talk about berries for a second. I know this is pedantic, but I want to give some specific examples. So the English word berry could capture. Two overlapping sets. So in the first instance, we have the word berry to talk about things like blueberries and strawberries, et cetera. This is the culinary meaning of the category berry. It captures a property cluster. It includes things that are basically like small and sweet and round, and we put in fruit salads or something like that or, or certain kinds of pies. This is the culinary usage of the word berry. Okay. And it has and different individual speakers may adjudicate boundary cases differently. We might disagree about certain whether mulberries are berries or not or something like that. I, I don't know if that one really people argue about, but they could. Okay. But. There's also a biological category berry that is berries, Presume berries come up from a single flower. The biological category berry, um, the thing that anchors berries in their shared properties is not that they're used in the same culinary devices, but how they're formed in the trajectory of the plant. According to the biological category, cucumbers are berries, and but strawberries are not. Now, I don't want to say that the biological category is any more real, but I just want to suggest that those two categories are capturing... Different property clusters. So, just the, the words are, even though they they sound like synonyms, we might, or they might be synonyms, or. Uh, They're two different words that are capturing different kinds of kinds. So the culinary kind, berry, we could put a number on it called berry one, is a different kind, uh, although it overlaps with culinary kind two, which is berry number two, which is a biological kind. And even the biological kind is going to have gray areas in it. There'll be debates around – there were debates around I think whether watermelons counted as berries because according to the single flower definition, I think watermelons might count, but then they have hard external shells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So all that is to say – and then – uh, but we get a lot more because we don't bracket out the world. You're exactly right. And except the only other piece is that I'm trying to do a meta-ontology, which is to say, I'm not presuming any particular definition of the world and what it contains. I'm not saying, you know, that scientific uh, reductive materialism is exactly right about what the world is. Rather, What I want to suggest is that, you know, you could be a scientific materialist, you could be uh, a Mormon, you could be a Zoroastrian. Uh, It doesn't really matter as long as the world has some kinds of somewhat stable categories with somewhat stable properties. That's the only, that's the minimal nature of a world. You just need a world. You don't need any specific world. And then this whole theory of language kind of comes out of that. And one of the other things I want to emphasize before we move off of this, and then I know I have a tendency to monologue, that's another side effect of being tired, um, is that this has concrete implications. For things like translation theory. What I want to say is that people share meaning of the same language less than, than is presumed. But because if we assume that the shared meaning even within a language is less, then we actually see that what we can we actually do share across translation. We see that translation is possible. We see that translation is not one-to-one words. To be clear, there, there are many words that don't have a clear single analog. Wabi Sabi, for example, doesn't have a clear one-word translation into English, but you can write a couple paragraphs. That become an ampliative translation of the word wabi-sabi. And I say that they provide similar accounts of meaning because according to the theory of meaning I've defined, they produce similar kinds of inferences in the person reading that paragraph translation of wabi-sabi. So anyway, that's an argument for translation is much more fallible. It's much more flawed. It's often screwed up, but it is, I want to argue, possible. And if you grant that that's possible, that has huge implications because we've been presuming on the grounds of the post-structuralists and also some kind of analytic philosophers like Quine, that in translation is impossible. But if, uh, and, and For example, the whole idea in philosophy of science that you can't translate in between paradigms. This is central to Kuhn's claim uh, of the uh, radical critique of philosophy of science. But there's an irony in all these arguments about the impossibility of translation that I identify, which is that to make their case, they often present a translation. So when Kuhn wants to tell you that two paradigms are not commensurable, he compares the two to incommensurable paradigms so that and there's a similar argument if I tell you that you can't translate the word you know uh, when uh, Derrida illustrates the impossibility of the translation of James Joyce's he wore into French, he translates that word into French, and now we have a translation of it into English. Uh, all that is to say, the more you make your case for the impossibility of translation, you're actually making my case for the possibility but flawed nature of translation. It's just it doesn't turn out there's one unique translation. As we were saying earlier, there's no one way to translate any given text or term.
1: Well, and then if I if I play the part of the post-structuralist beat poet here, when you're talking about building on from imperfection, I'm suddenly thinking of Kintsugi, you know, the, the Japanese concept of, you know, building from imperfection or... Yeah. um I'm also thinking that this project fully undermines Dr. Doolittle's claim that, you know, why not talk to the animals? Well, no, because you're assuming that the categories are going to mean the same thing to all the animals. So now that I've just just eradicated um, part of my father's childhood pop culture, um, as we come to the end of this interview, I do want to read one quote from the book that appears on page 102 that I do think sums a lot of this up. The world we study in the human sciences is not jointed. It is not divisible into clearly demarcated kinds. But even so, we can still study the social world. And I think that that's an interesting quote because it gets to this idea of building onwards without completely rejecting the critiques that make us stop and question the status quo. So then I would ask you, the book in some ways takes the thesis of you know, if you want to say materialism in some respects, and also modernism, even though those aren't static categories, that it has the antithesis of postmodernism, and now you have the Hegelian synthesis of metamodernism. Is that what you were going for? Is that an accurate reading of the book?
2: Well, I I don't think of synthesis. So that that reading of minute fight in Hegel studies that it might only be uh, interesting to a small group of people. Hegel didn't really have thesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That's a second-order reading. Hegel had abstraction, negation, and negation of the negation. That was how the logic uh, in Hegel's encyclopedia logic, that's how thought is supposed to move. So I would say uh, only with of synthesis, I would say there's something that, let's say, positivism, postmodernism, positioned itself as the negation of modernism or the negation of positivism. And I'm trying to do the negation of the negation of postmodernism, which is, and, and this doesn't have, it sounds jargony, but what I mean is kind of more concretely, it's, when uh, I'll just get into Hegel for one second. I'm sorry. Um, Hegel uh, described the negation of the negation as a pivoting or rotating of something on its axis. It's a granting of the critique uh, in, 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 to produce a higher order position. So I, I think that it's controversial in the reading of Hegel, what he had in mind uh, with his negation of the negation. But I think it's, for example, thinking about Kant's uh, crit- uh, reaction to Hume so for example Kant uh, described Hume as having woken him from his dogmatic slumber what Hume did was had a you know a skeptical critique what Kant does is he grants the critique but makes the critique itself the foundation of his larger uh, transcendental categories so in that respect but but you're right that it's an attempt to work out and through the the earlier you know postmodern and earlier moments uh, and, and and out the other side but again I think it stands on its own case even if you don't like my reading of Hegel even if you don't like my reading of the postmodernists um, I think there's some concrete reasons why scholars of religion might want to read The monograph, and uh, you know, it 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 tries to solve a whole bunch of our problems. What do we mean by meaning and translation? What do we do with these categories that we can deconstruct? How should we do comparison? It has a whole new theory. uh, I think of comparison, uh, how comparison functions, how we should make generalizations, what our theories should look like, and then there's also a whole ethical part of the project where I talk about the relationship between facts and values. uh, Rather than trying to flush out our norms, I talk about how uh, we might think about how uh, uh, evidence and norms work together, or can work in conflict with each other, uh, a whole bunch of things. So um, you know, in a way, it's an attempt to provide scholars in the study of religion and other human sciences or other human and social scientific disciplines with a set of concrete methods, techniques, and philosophical tools, uh, which should be generative of a whole new kind of scholarship. That that I think I'm beginning, and I've been flattered. I've gotten emails uh, that are people who are starting to put this into place. You know, doing work on the categories, mysticism, or doing work on the category um, uh, in Islamic studies, or or or, or in I mean, I've got my own stuff coming out about categories like religion and science. And all of these are kind of w- new kind of work that I think you can begin to do. And it also, you know, it also provides an underpinning or justification for some of the work that's already going on. So some work is going to say, oh, I understand now what, what moves I was doing in this deconstructive chapter, but now maybe I can flesh it out a little bit better or now, you know, something like that, you know, and it's good. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that I'm imagining um, with, with the project as a whole. Yeah, it's an attempt to—it's something crazy ambitious. I feel really self-conscious sticking my neck out, but I've been really flattered uh, at the positive response that I've gotten so far. Although I'm sure, you know, I'll also get into a lot of arguments.
1: Yeah. Well, in closing, too, I've just found myself mentally regressing for a moment to my senior year of high school, taking a critical theory college prep class. And after learning, uh, you know, a mashup of modernist and postmodernist critical theory, and then thinking with, if we critique things, I remember saying to my teacher in desperation, well, then it means that there is no meaning. And Mr. McNerney, God love him, said, now hold on, Dan. And I feel like your book is sort of the, and now hold on interjection um, and saying that, just because we can and should meditate and be reflective doesn't mean we should completely give up on pursuing knowledge. So thank you, Mr. McNerney. Thank you, Jason. And also a shout (laughs) out to (laughs) um, all the editors who helped me uh, prep for this interview, which felt a bit like a graduate hands-on seminar in um, critical
2: theory. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much, Dan and Jason, for this excellent episode. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in today. If you'd like to find out more about this episode, head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com, where you'll find a transcript and more information about this episode today. Also, head over to social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear what you thought. Please share and like and comment. We love hearing from all of our listeners and continuing the conversation on social media. We hope that you enjoy these episodes and find all of the other resources we provide, like transcripts and job ads, calls for papers, funding resources, to be useful and productive, both for your work or in the classroom. And If so, we would really appreciate it if you would consider making a donation, either a one-time donation via PayPal or signing up for a monthly donation as little as $1 a month at patreon.com because it would go a long way in helping to offset some of the costs that go into the production of these episodes and other resources. And until next time, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.
1: The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, video editing by Allison Isidore, podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk .co.uk, and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, and all other portals.